Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Uh, good morning, Sandy. How are you today? I am most excellent. Really? Yeah, I am. Well, I, I find that a little strange. Why? But why would you say you're most excellent today? The sun is shining. I'm with you and Don. Oh. <laughs> Aw. It's always good to see our producer, Don, in the studio. Well, I know that you're coming back off of three weeks of a wonderful vacation, but I think I'm a little melancholy because we have one daughter about to embark back to Africa and another daughter that's headed off to school, which means how many people are going to be left in our big old house? You and me, kid. You and me, the dog, and the cat. All right. You just took me down. I well, was having a good day. <laughs> well, anyway, Nell, Nell, that's where we are today. How are you doing? And would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing well today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm with Sandy. I'm, I'm just... I'm having a good morning so far. The sun is out. It's summertime. It's Friday. All mm-hmm. is all is well. So, um, so if you were on like a news show or one of those conferences, how would you introduce yourself? A news show you, with the uh, name and what you do at the current moment. So my name is Nell Hurley, mm-hmm. and I have a small business called Hurley Health. Mm-hmm. Hurley Health is a recovery support organization that combines fitness with recovery support. Mm-hmm. My two passions. There you go. Have melded together. And uh, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I started Hurley Health about a year and a half ago um, during the pandemic, which was challenging, but it's I've had lots of experiences in the recovery community, which we can we can talk about. But I feel like everything has been kind of leading me to this mm-hmm. moment where I I have my own business, and I'm working with people who are either in recovery or sober curious, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm sort of infusing fitness and movement into that process of taking a look at substance use or um, recovering from substance use challenges. It's interesting, you know, you mentioned how if you look back, everything lined up to what you're doing today. And I think about how much time as a young person you spend trying to map out your career journey and line things up just perfectly. And my experience is that I can only see the path in the rearview mirror that it prepared me for where I am, but nothing was on the plan. It just happened, or the door opened, or the window opened, or... Yeah, yeah. exactly. I actually, I went for a walk with a friend of mine last night, and we were talking about, we, we had just like this big conversation about life and career and, um, you know, just sort of big stuff, parenting, all of it. And we were talking about just that, you know, I, and I was actually saying to her, like, I wish that I had, that it hadn't taken me so long to kind of figure it out, but you know, Mm -hmm. it took what it took. And I had all these different experiences that really did lead me to where I am today. And I don't regret any of it. I I've had a very, I don't, I know very few people who have sort of a straight line path Mm -hmm. in their career. I have one friend who is an architect and he knew when he was in sixth grade that he wanted to be an architect Mm -hmm. and that's what he did. And, but he's, you know, he is the exception Mm -hmm. uh, to the rule. I've never had a plan. Correct. But here I am at CCAR now for 23 plus years. So that wasn't part part of the plan. It just unfolded. But I did have about 33 jobs before I ever right. <laughs> landed at Seacar. You front-loaded. <laughs> yeah, I guess I front-loaded. I don't know. Um, here's 
What's your earliest childhood memory? Oh, gosh. I don't, you know, I have, I feel like some of my, what I think of as my earliest childhood memories aren't even really memories, but they've come to me through photographs mm. and through stories that yeah. my family has has told over the years. So I'm not sure. I I do have a very distinct memory. This isn't even really all that early. I was probably five or six years old, but I have a memory of my dad teaching me how to ride a bike. Ah. And that is when I think of like early childhood experiences, that is that is something that I remember so clearly. I remember the what I and there's also pictures of it. So maybe that is <laughs> partly informing my memory, but I I feel like I remember what I was wearing. I remember, you know, the the just the the feeling of summertime and being with my dad and you know, it was a big milestone to learn mm-hmm. how to ride a bike. Um, I remember my haircut, mm-hmm. I guess from the photographs, but yeah. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in St. Paul, St. Paul, Minnesota, where I live today, where I've spent most of my life. I've had a few um, excursions to other places. Uh, I went to college in Washington State. I lived abroad for uh, a short time after college, um, but I've spent most of my life here in St. Paul. Do you have siblings? I have two brothers. Yeah, one's in Minneapolis. One is in San Francisco, California, where he's been for 25 years or so. But yes, I come from a big Irish Catholic family in that is from St. Paul. So I have tons of cousins and second cousins and we all grew up together and in a different time, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in the seventies and eighties, I was talking about this with my husband last night, actually, not to sound like, you know, an old crotchety person, but just how much the world has changed since we were kids. He's Mm -hmm. 10 years older than me, but still I grew up before the internet, before phones. And I actually live in the same neighborhood that I grew up in. So I have a lot of memories of running around the neighborhood, playing outside. Um, You know, we entertained ourselves and came in when the streetlights came on. So just one clarification for our audience that might be listening on the podcast before cell phones. Oh, Oh, before cell phones. Yes. Not before. Yes. Dial phones. (laughs) But we did have a phone that was attached to our kitchen wall. It was Mm -hmm. a it wasn't even a push button phone. It was a rotary phone. And it had a long cord, and uh, you know we would talk and talk on the phone. In the, yep. in the we had a party. We had a party line, so that that you sometimes Ooh. there was somebody else on the phone, and you had to wait till they were done. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You are you are that much older than me. So. Uh, all right. Well, I did everything exactly the same way Nell did growing up. That was just the way we grew up. It was a different time. Yeah. What were you yeah. like as a kid? I was kind of a cute, cute <laughs> kid, you know. I, I believe it. Yeah, I um, I, I had a lot of friends. I laughed a lot as a kid, um, especially in middle school. I was always getting tro- in trouble for laughing my head off with Michelle McLaughlin <laughs> uh, in in school. I was drawn to people, I think, as a kid. And I think that as I've gotten older, I've become, I don't know if your personality can really change. You know how you take those tests that tell you whether you're an Mm -hmm. introvert or an extrovert. I think I truly was extroverted as a kid. And as a young person, I was very sort of outwardly motivated towards people. And as I've gotten older, even before the pandemic, I have become more introverted and more, um, sort of in need of recharging my batteries by being alone and having downtime, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was very social as a kid. I'll say that. Uh, Yeah. What were your passions, your big interests? Well, when I was in eighth grade, 
I started going to a YMCA camp in Minnesota, in northern Minnesota, called Camp Wijewagen. Mm-hmm. And this camp was based in Ely, Minnesota, which is right on the edge of the Boundary Waters. And I, I actually grew up even before that going to kind of a sister camp to to Widgee called Camp Du Nord, which was a also a YMCA camp, but it was a family camp. And I absolutely lived for camp. Mm. I so when I went to camp, I would canoe. And paddle in the boundary waters, portaging and paddling and camping. And it was my absolute um, sort of lifesaver and, and refuge. Uh, I started using in high school. And when I would go to camp in the summertime, that was my, um, it was, it, it's hard to even describe. It was like a spiritual reprieve from my life at home, my life in St. Paul, um, which wasn't, you know, the using at that point wasn't, the using itself wasn't terrible. It was, I was trying to escape my own, Mm. you know, discomfort. (laughs) There's my dog. Uh, Yes. Um, Anyway, my, so my real passion was, was, was the boundary waters and being on the water, being in a canoe and um, portaging and hiking and um, I, I mosquitoes. Vi- <laughs> yeah, I visited Ely when I was in uh, St. Paul with uh, Joe Camp, and he yeah. had, he had a cabin up there, and I had a spiritual experience in that in that in that area it's just an amazingly beautiful peaceful place do you go up there still i do not as much as i would like to Mm -hmm. but um i do go i have a friend a dear friend who bought a piece of land in ely just a few years ago and i've helped her build uh a sort of a tiny little cabin Oh, wow. Uh, on the property. She is an amazing person. She can like, she's this little five foot one <laughs> person and she can build anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything. She can build a house. She can build a canoe. She <laughs> can, and she's done it all. And um, so I just show up and she tells me where to make cuts, mm-hmm. you know, with a saw or where to drill <laughs> holes and and uh, it's been really fun being up on her land with her and just being in that part of the state. That sounds good. So you're in high school and you said you were using to escape. What do you think you were trying to escape from? Expand on that a little bit. My parents got divorced when I was six years old. Uh, this was 1976. I'm 53 now. I was born in 1969. I'll just save you from having to mm-hmm. do the math. Uh, so when I was six, almost seven years old, my parents got divorced and that was really, uh, I, I wouldn't use the word, I wouldn't have used the word trauma or, or traumatic until maybe a few years ago when I learned more about trauma, sort Mm -hmm. of capital T trauma, lower, you know, I always thought of trauma as like being in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. in combat or something, but it was, um, it, it was very um, hard as a, as a little kid to, to go through, you know, for our whole family went, went through that. And I think the years following the divorce feeling with this acute feeling of sort of shame and awkwardness. And even though, you know, there was part of me that was like this really like sort of outgoing, cute, like fun loving little kid I also had a very strong feeling of like, what's going on here? And I, you know, this doesn't seem right. And, and, um, you know, who knows? It's, it's, it's hard to sort of pinpoint like why or where. Um, I think there's all kinds of reasons why I sort of developed the way that I did Mm -hmm. in feeling less than uncomfortable restless, irritable, and discontent, you know, even as a little kid. And when I was about 15, um, 
I drank alcohol for the first time. And uh, it was, and actually my first experience with alcohol was not, you know, sometimes in the, in, in the rooms of recovery, you hear people describe that experience as like this, you know, like white light experience of like, this is it, this is the answer. And I actually had a very, a really scary experience the first time I drank alcohol. I drank a whole bottle of slow gin Ooh. when I was 15 years old, the first time I drank, because I just didn't know, I didn't know what, what I was doing. And um, I, I got alcohol poisoning. It was terrible. And, you know, scared the bejesus out of my parents. And I just was so ashamed of what I'd done. And I didn't go back to alcohol for uh, quite a long time. But shortly after that, I discovered marijuana. And mm. that was my, <laughs> that, that was it for me. That was my answer. And, um, you know, that's what I did for as much as I could over the next four years. Um, I went to treatment when I was 19 years old. Wow. Uh, I had two treatments in one year um, when I was 19. I, you know, I don't know what to say about those experiences. <laughs> uh, you know, I. How did they come to be, though? Like, how was that your choice? Were people around you influencing you to go? Yeah, a couple of things played into it. One was that, uh, so I mentioned that my parents got divorced in 1976. And it was a very, you know, I, I came from a huge family. I have all these cousins, um, Catholic, Irish Catholic family. 1976, I didn't, we didn't know a single other family that had divorced parents. And, um, and that in itself had a big impact on me. I think nowadays, you know, unfortunately divorce is so common. It's mm -hmm. not, kids don't necessarily feel like I'm the only one. Right. Um, but, uh, so 1976 was when the divorce happened. And then in about 1978, Eight. So when I was about eight or nine years old, my mom went through treatment for uh, marijuana use. Hmm. And um, about six months after that, my dad went through treatment. So I had two experiences as a, as a young girl, eight, nine years old, uh, going to a family program. And I remember... I have this distinct memory of when my dad was in treatment, being in the family program. I mean, I can remember the counselor. This was in the 70s. He had, I know beards are very um, in again, but the, he had the 19, the 70s beard. And um, we were in a room that had yellow walls and yellow chairs. Um, I was sucking my thumb, which is kind of weird for yep. an eight-year-old, but I, you know, I, I remember it completely. And I remember that counselor saying this, I don't remember the exact words that he used, but the message was, this is a family disease. I don't know mm -hmm. if he used the word disease mm -hmm. or illness, but the message got through to me that like, this can be in your genetics, mm -hmm. in, in your genes. And the way that I interpreted that as a, as a little kid was this thing is going to get me too. And I didn't hang on to that, that sort of premonition, but I mean, I sort of, I think kind of forgot about it and went on and became a, you know, happy-go-lucky middle schooler and, um, uh, you know, then started using in high school. But as soon as I started using that thought popped up of, you know, it felt to me from the get-go, like my using was different and I felt powerless. It felt out of control. Even though I was just quote unquote using marijuana, it was like, oh man, this is, you know, I am, I'm on a ride. Like you better hang on here. So, uh, so I had these experience, early experiences with um, members of my family, close members of my family, my parents being in recovery and other members of my extended family also being being in recovery. I, I remember going to 
meetings, like big open meetings with my mom and dad. Um, it wasn't something that I didn't know about. I was yeah. aware of both the problem and the solution, mm -hmm. the kind of the whole, my whole childhood, it, it felt like. So when I was 19, uh, or when I was 18, I graduated from high school. All my, I went to a private Catholic all girls school. All my friends went off to college and I was just, you know, using every day. And I, I just couldn't get it together enough to like be on the same track that my peers were on. So they all went off to college. I took a job at a bank downtown St. Paul in a mail room where on my first day of work, my, I worked three to 11 shift. So downtown St. Paul would essentially like they would roll up the sidewalks at four o'clock. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, on my first day of work, my supervisor um, offered me cocaine. So I worked that job. We would load up the, this big copy machine in the mailroom that would run for hours and hours. Again, this was a different time. This mm -hmm. was before people could just, you know, send things via email mm -hmm. or we would make copies. And then we would go across the street to a bar, even though I was under 21, I had a fake ID and we would drink. And that was my life for a year. And I just knew that that I was missing out on, you know, it was, it was like, what am I doing? But I had the same experience day after day after day of going into the mailroom every day telling myself, I'm not gonna drink today. I'm not gonna do cocaine. I'm not gonna keep doing this. And, you know, by 6 p.m., I'd, I, I would be doing the same thing. So uh, I, I, I essentially sort of checked myself in to, to treatment. I told my mom what was going on and I had insurance through the bank and um, I was enrolled in an outpatient treatment program at St. Joseph's Hospital in downtown St. Paul. I went to treatment, um, didn't love it. <laughs> was very much, you know, I felt like my life was over if I was going to have to quit using um, because I was so young and, uh, but I didn't know what else to do. Um, I was using by the time I was in, back then they called it aftercare, um, which was like the weekly kind of check-in meeting. Um, and then uh, about six months later, I went through another outpatient program. Um, and nothing, I can't even remember how I got there. Nothing big happened. I just, you know, I think I thought, well, maybe I'll try again. Yeah. And so I, I got into another outpatient program and that program I didn't even finish. I remember I was living at, with my mom at the time. I remember saying to my mom, please just don't just, I hate going there. I just feel so out of place. And she said, you don't have to go, but you have to go to meetings. So I started going to AA meetings at age 19, and this was in 1989. Um, I actually found young people. I found, you know, this was long before YPR or, mm. you know, any of these, you know, mini PAW, uh, Minnesota Young People in AA, I don't think existed, but there were some young people around. And, uh, and again, I was outgoing and extroverted and, and I liked having friends. And that was my recovery. That was mm -hmm. my pathway was being social and having friends. And I played recovery softball and or on the you know softball league on Friday nights. And I found a whole community. And uh, and that was the beginning for me. That was you know, kind of, I don't know. I never had a sponsor. Like I went to meetings. I don't know that I ever worked any steps or anything, but I was in it. I was in the community and I was connected to people. And it was, it was amazing. I didn't know that uh, I could do anything without smoking weed. Mm -hmm. So you've been in recovery since? No. <laughs> I, <laughs> there's more to the story. So. I was like, well, wow. Yeah. I, so I, I had a really good few years. I stayed sober for about three years. So mm -hmm. from 19 to about 22. 
And I lived at home in St. Paul. I lived with my, 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 my parents ended up getting back together. That's a whole nother. I was wondering. Um, yeah. Uh, but many years later, but Mm -hmm. I lived at home and I worked at a coffee shop in St. Paul, this like really great coffee shop that was always crowded and there was music and again this was in 1989 mm. 1990 this was there was no starbucks there was right. i mean i'm dating myself yeah actually dating myself by giving you the date but yeah. um it was such a fun job and uh i enrolled in in school at the community college in minneapolis minneapolis community college and I loved it. It was so fun for me to be able to be a student and not be high and, you know, to discover how to rediscover how much I loved learning because I loved school when I was uh, in middle school and before I started using in high school. And but I lost that. Well, while I was in high school, while I was using, I was really rebellious. I was cutting class and barely getting by and so to rediscover my love of learning and i took every do you know that's how i remember you or always think of you because we're skipping ahead many years but when you started working with the minnesota recovery connection and you and i connected you were so passionate about learning you wanted to know everything Yeah. yeah, I'm still like that. I, I, I think of myself as you remember that TV show Cheers, again, dating myself, yeah. but Diane on Cheers, she mm-hmm. was like, had like 10 master's degrees in mm-hmm. anthropology and <laughs> yeah. social work and all. Yes. I, if I could just, you know, be in in school for the rest of my life. But, yeah, but you know, we kind of are. Fun. We kind of are, yes, aren't we? we? Yes, yes, we kind of are. Mm-hmm. Um. But so I rediscovered my my love of learning. I took all the classes I could at Minneapolis Community College. I got my two year degree and that whole time I was sober and had friends and my life was just my life just exploded. You know, it it just got so much bigger than it was when I was working in that mailroom where Mm -hmm. all I did was drink and work in the mailroom. so after taking all the classes that I could at the community college, I wanted to transfer to a four-year school. So I transferred to Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. And my parents bought me a little used Honda Civic and I drove it from St. Paul to Bellingham. And I remember driving into Bellingham. It's this beautiful kind of a small college town 50,000 people and it's right on the Puget Sound and there's snow-capped mountains and just the trees and I was coming in on this sort of windy road and I just was overcome with this like euphoric feeling of a fresh start Mm -hmm. like you know I've got this experience ahead of me I'm starting college you know I'm going away to college and uh I thought, I'm just going to start over. I'm just, I didn't want, I don't know that this was really a conscious thought, but it was in there somewhere where I thought, I don't want to be the weird one who's like been to treatment or Mm. has been, who is sober. I was 21 or 22 years old. And I just wanted to have like a quote unquote normal college experience. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to share that part of myself. And again, it wasn't really a conscious thought, it, but it that's what I did. So I went to school in Bellingham. I absolutely loved it. I did a semester in Greece while I was there. I, I, I loved school so much that my drinking actually didn't interfere with my schoolwork because I would prefer to read and write papers than use, although I did you know, I would like go to bars on weekends or parties and, um, but it didn't, I kind of managed it for a couple of years. Uh, but then (laughs) as you can probably predict, things started to unravel. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. I graduated, I came back to Minnesota and I felt very, I think being back in my home town where I got sober, I, I felt like I didn't have a place. Mm. And, um, and it, it felt very much for the next couple of years. I drank for five years from 22 to 27. And I spent almost all of my mental energy during that, at least the last three year period, just trying to manage my drinking. Mm. And I kind of sort of did like, you know, maybe like eight out of every 10 times I drank, it was kind of, kind of okay. But the very, I couldn't predict when was the one or two times where it would, you know, go totally off the rails and I'd be trying to get cocaine. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just, and I was back to like, Oh my God, this is not, this is, this, this is not healthy. This is not good. This is, this is not good. So I started going back to meetings and And I think I always thought in the back of my head, like, well, you know, if things ever get bad enough, I'll just go back to meetings and I'll be fine. Well, that's not the way it worked for me. I started going back to meetings and it, and I, it didn't click. I was, I would go to a meeting every Wednesday night and then I would drink on the weekend and then I would go back to the meeting and and then drink, you know, maybe I would put two weeks together, you know, but I was, I just wasn't, I, I was just really in and out for about a year. And, um, then I got a DUI Mm. and, and I kept, you know, sort of in and out, in and out. My very last drink was the last time I used anything was alcohol. I had one glass of wine on December 27th, 1997. And I, I was still trying to like prove to myself and, and to the world, but mostly to myself, like, you know, see, I can have one glass of wine. This, you know, it's cool. I'm fine. Look at me. I'm such a, such a in control grown up. but there was something like, you know how it is. You can't explain it. Like mm-hmm. first there was some part of me that just went, that's it. Mm-hmm. You're done. Mm-hmm. Who cares if you can have one sometimes, there are those times when you can't have one mm-hmm. or, you know, two or three or four, who knows what is going to happen. So I don't know. I don't know how, all I know is that I went to that. I went to the same meeting on Wednesday nights at six o'clock on the back porch of the uptown AA house every Wednesday night for five years. Mm. And that's, I took my last drink somewhere in there <laughs> and I've, you know, kind of never looked back. Right. You know, there's a few things in in what you shared. So one of them is that I work with students in recovery at the University of Connecticut. And I have this experience of students coming in, meeting with me and saying they don't want anybody to know. Um, they want to live in a traditional dorm. Um, they want to give this a go. Um, mm-hmm. And I think your story is not unusual with how that turns out. The other thing that you um, kind of sparked in me, you and Phil, was Phil asked you if you remained in recovery all these years, and you said, no, you hadn't. And so one of the conversations I've been having with a lot of different folks um, recently is recovery equivalent to sobriety. So when you think about that time that you returned to use, were you still leveraging recovery tools and practices or had you really just moved away from those things in your life? That's a good question. And the whole, you know, issue of sort of what is recovery Mm -hmm. is um, very compelling. Uh, I think for the first couple of years, Sandy, I, I did, I, I remained pretty healthy. I was using some, but I was, I had real purpose by, by being in school. I am a lifelong learner. I, I thrive in that environment, in academic environments. And I, I, I felt pretty whole and healthy, uh, 
but late, so that was for about the first two years during this five year period mm -hmm. of a return to use. But then I started to get, you know, sort of, I graduated from, from college and I, I, I started to kind of fall apart a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I wasn't practicing all, all mm -hmm. that, that many recovery tools. Yeah. Or treating yeah. your disease, right? So I, right. Um, I've been rewiring my brain because sobriety is still at the core of my own recovery, but I've been rewiring my brain as I think of young adults and think of that decision that you talked about. Like, am I okay, I know what this is about. Am I going to make this decision to never use for the rest of my life? And sometimes the shame that comes along with return to use that keep young people particularly from, well, any age, from returning to treating their disease. Mm-hmm. But... That's enough on that. I'll let. No, yeah. well, I, just, I just think for me it was, and I do this, uh, I have a lot of, a pattern is I go really hard at something until something gives away. <laughs> and that's what I did with my drinking and something gave, you know, got in a lot of trouble, put that down and said, well, obviously I can't do that. Let me try cocaine. That'll probably work a little better. And I went really hard on that until that blew up, and I put that aside. And the only thing that's really sustained me is this uh, pathway of recovery that I've been on now since 1987 that's really always fresh, always interesting. You can always learn more when you're on this, what I think is a spiritual journey towards self-awareness. You know, which is just more and more. I learn more and more about myself all the time. Yeah. You know, so I know that you've pursued recovery and you got involved with the recovery movement. So talk a little bit about how you you ended up in part of this recovery movement and all of that. And well, that happened by accident. Well, so did mine too. <laughs> a happy accident. <laughs> Isn't an uh, accident really? I, I call them divine. Right. A divine appointment. Right. All right. <laughs> so in two thousand nine, mm -hmm. I you're was... amazing with dates. By the way, I don't know how you remember all those things, but yeah, you got the timeline in your head. I can't remember yeah. the dates. Sandy, uh, when did we get married? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> What's your anniversary date? Yeah. yeah. Do you know Sandy's birthday? Hopefully. Uh, uh, <laughs> most, most days. Um, so 2008, I was working for a software company when the recession hit. I was laid off. Hmm. And uh, so I was freelancing for about, I don't know, nine months or so. I was kind of hustling, uh, freelance writing etc just trying to pay the bills and someone told me and i was looking for 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 a full-time job someone told me about a job that they had heard about it was working for a recovery community organization in saint paul and at that time i had been uh sober abstinent in recovery for 12 years and was very you know um rooted in in the recovery community here in St. Paul, where I live, I had never heard of an RCO or recovery community organization. And I, I mean, I was like, what's that? You know, that, I don't know, that sounds kind of cool. What, you know, so, so I went to check it out. I uh, sent my resume. I got an interview. I went to the interview, Joe Camp, uh, who started Minnesota Recovery Connection um, was the, the, kind of the main guy there. And I was interviewed by the board of directors. I, I was so green. I didn't know anything about recovery advocacy. I'd never heard of a recovery coach. I didn't know what a recovery community organization was. I, you know, I was a blank slate, but I think that what they liked about me was that I was rooted in recovery um, and I, I also had a business background. So but going back to my love of school and my love of learning, by this time, I 
was working on my second master's degree. Mm -hmm. So I got one master's degree in 2000 uh, in English literature, which is just my passion, literature and, wow. and um, books. Uh, and then I went back to school in 2009. Um, I went to business school uh, and and got a master's in nonprofit management. So I think that the Board of Minnesota Recovery Connection thought, well, here's someone who has um, business experience and is in recovery. So they hired me as the executive director, the mm -hmm. first employee of Minnesota Recovery Connection. And I, I tell people that on my first day of work at MRC, I had one of those yellow legal pads, like a yellow pad of paper and a pen and $542,000 to build. Uh, you know, they had gotten the money mm -hmm. from the state of Minnesota. They had a work plan. And, uh, but they, you know, they were like, all right, we're, we got funded. Let's hire someone and, and, and let them, let them build it. And that's exactly what they just like handed me a work plan, $542,000 for 18 months of operation. They said, build this thing. And that is what I did. And mm -hmm. it was amazing. I've mm -hmm. never worked so much or so hard in my life as I did for those. I was only there for five years. Mm -hmm. um, but the very first thing I did when I got that job was to come to Connecticut. Mm -hmm. I mean, about the first thing I did. I mm -hmm. think, you know, I, I had been there, you know, about a month and I, I came out uh, to see you, Phil, and shadowed mm -hmm. your staff. Mm -hmm. And just, I was just, you know, it was like, getting a PhD in, in, in recovery community organization, just like this total immersion into how, what does it look like? How does it work? And I was just a sponge and I spent time with you. You were a huge mentor to me. Then I went to Washington DC. Mm -hmm. I spent time with Pat Taylor at mm -hmm. Faces and Voices of Recovery. I spent time with uh, Tom Hill. Mm -hmm. um, later I met Neil, Campbell. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went to Atlanta, spent a week with her. I mean, I just, and then I kind of took it back to Minnesota and we Minnesotified it. You did. And we, we built this, we built an incredible recovery community organization. Mm -hmm. And now there are 14 RCOs in Minnesota wow. today, 12 years later. Um, so it's really, really grown. Um, Minnesota Recovery Connection is still, still in operation. It's much, much bigger than it was then. Um, do, they, I, do, do they have an area or do they oversee all the RCOs? They do not oversee all the RCOs. They're trying to create um, sort of a, a, a Marco. So a Minnesota Association of Recovery right. Community Organizations. So sort of a, you know, all the RCOs are, separate but they're they're working on trying to make a more connected network so that people can work together more i i remember even back then saying like we should do this the way connecticut is doing it mm -hmm. and dhs didn't our department of human services just didn't go for it and everything was funded by the state at that time um so you know not surprisingly it developed in this way where there's you know, all these different RCOs popped up across the state and they all have different founders, different 501c3s, different boards, and they're competing with each other right? in, in some ways. It's really sort of heartbreaking to see, but maybe maybe it'll come together. Well, that was that's always been the, the age old discussion, right? Do you have a statewide mm -hmm. RCO? And I've always said that Connecticut is a little different because it's so small. Right. So geographically, you have that, but it's this came from our Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, our single state agency, that they wanted a single point of contact, you know, that they could trust and then develop like recovery community centers, services all across the state. So they so they only had to deal with that one entity, and that one person. If something happened in one of the sites we would take care of it. And right. now the the state created, they have to deal with 14, right? <laughs> More yeah. or less in Minnesota, but that happens in a lot of places too. So, 
But this is kind of getting into our business and nonprofit management thing. So, you know, I was fascinated too. One of the things I remember about you coming out and implementing was, I think telephone recovery support was still really new to us. And telephone um, recovery support is uh, where we call somebody and check in on their recovery, right? Just a little different spin. And still today, you know, we've been doing it maybe 15, 16 years. We're still calling 500 people a week here in Connecticut. And is that still going in Minnesota? Do you know? It it is. Isn't that cool? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's such a, I just love that model Mm -hmm. of, you know, of having someone who, a a peer, someone who has something to offer to call someone who may be struggling to Mm -hmm. say, you know, this expectation that someone who is struggling with substances is going to pick up the phone and check in, you know, is Mm -hmm. kind of absurd. Mm It just doesn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's just really a great model. Well, I've recently been struggling a little bit with, uh, I'm not struggling, I'm accepting, but I've had a lot of, um, you know, with losing both my parents back in March, uh, they were divorced for 40 years and they passed within 48 hours of each other. And I was kind of at, I was at the bedside of both of them, basically. And, um, you know, one of my buddies, we were all at breakfast. We have a breakfast club from the class of 77. And he says, well, you know, you could have called me. And I said, you know, when I'm feeling this way, the last thing I want to do is call somebody. And that's true, you know, like 33, 34 years in recovery, I don't want to talk to anybody about it. But if you called me and asked me about it, asked me a good question, Mm -hmm. I I might open up about it. But my tendency is when I'm feeling a certain way is just to shut down, retreat. You know, it's not to it's not to reach out. But we think that's what we're supposed to do. So call me before you fall. No, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about what brought you from that season of five years to what you're doing today. So when I I left Minnesota Recovery Connection in 2014. And you left a very viable, strong organization with a strong foundation. So kudos to you for doing that. Because that's what I want to do when I ultimately let go of CCAR. I don't. It, I want it to be so solid and so strong that it just Nobody notices continues. that the banana shirt right. yeah, left the, banana the shirt Yes, left. yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, you know, MRC did have a couple of, of rough years of after, after I left. Not, mm-hmm. I mean, just by the very nature of transition. And, mm-hmm. it, and it, there was some turnover on the board. They moved locations. Um, but I was burned out. I mean, I was, you know, I, I was actually still in graduate school while I was working at MRC. Um, it took me five years to get that business degree because I was taking, I was, I was essentially getting the, applying my, my master's in nonprofit management in real time. Like I would go to class <laughs> and go, oh, yeah. I, like, I remember taking like a, the, the, nonprofit finance class or Mm -hmm. law class or something. And I mean, I was, again, I was so green. I didn't know, I didn't know anything. I remember one night in class learning about 990s and I was like, oh my God, (laughs) what's a 990? Do we have that? And so then I would go to work the next day and, Mm -hmm. you know, try to figure it out. But so I had gone through a divorce in, in 2006 I had a young child, my son, who is now 17. He was just a little guy. I was, um, you know, building a recovery community organization and I was in graduate school. And I just, after five years, I thought I need, I need something Mm -hmm. uh, a little less demanding. So I left MRC and I went to Hazelden, which is now the Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation. And, and I did take a, a, I mean, I hate to say it this way, but it was an easier job. I mean, mm-hmm. I would, I would literally, I would start work at, I would sit down at my desk at 8 a.m. and at 4:30, the parking lot of that place would just empty. 
mean, there, it was a treatment center. I was not working in on the clinical side of things. I was still in the realm of recovery management. So my passion really is around helping people find and, and, and sustain recovery in real life, mm. you know, not in necessarily while they're in mm-hmm. a detox center or, or a treatment center. So I got to do that. Um, but it, it, that job was never really quite right for me because it was in center city, Minnesota, which is 45 minutes to an hour away from St. Paul, Minneapolis, where I live. And I always felt like every morning I would, I would like get in my car and drive away from the community that I lived in and, and recovered in Hmm. to this clinical setting. And, you know, no, no, no shade on, on the treatment world, but it, it just wasn't quite right for me, but I stayed, I stayed there. I moved into another job, um, kind of a bigger job as the executive director of alumni services, uh, and I did that for a few years. I was at Hazelden for about about five years, a little less than than five years. And it was okay. I mean, it was, you know, I had great colleagues and and it was kind of exciting, you know, working for a big organization like that. But there was an organization based out of Denver, Colorado called the Phoenix, which um, is a is a they're a very, they don't even call themselves an RCO, but really they are a recovery community organization in, in the sense that they're a nonprofit organization that's run and led by members of the local recovery community. And they exist to serve that community. When I was there, everything they did revolved around physical activity. So now they're kind of branching out into other things like art and music and, and other activities. But uh, I, I had an opportunity to go to the Phoenix and that organization has a mission that is just, it's infused in every bone in my body. Mm-hmm. I just, a big part of my recovery story is that I have always used running and yoga and fitness as part of my recovery. And in the beginning, when I, going back to that story of how I, was sort of in and out of AA when I was in, in my twenties. And then I got the DUI and I still was like, Oh, like trying right in there. I joined a running club Mm. and I could not run. I was a smoker, like a pack a day smoker. Um, I, I couldn't run a block without, I mean, I just was like, Oh my God, (laughs) like this is impossible. But I started running and Someone told me about this running group on Saturday mornings. They, it wasn't a recovery group or sober folks or anything, but I just started showing up at this running club and it changed my life. Mm. I mean, I, I think that it, it helped to diffuse my anxiety and stress and maybe it got some feel good chemicals going in my brain. Who knows? But I think that for me, it was those two things together that was the winning recipe that helped me get into recovery and stay in recovery. And that was 25 years ago. I still run. I just ran the New York city marathon in November. I, um, along the way I've done it, this kind of goes along the lines of my love of learning also like if i'm interested in something, I just want to learn everything about it. So I started doing yoga and I was like, this is amazing. I want to know everything about yoga. So I went through a teacher training, like this immersion teacher training program back in 2006. And I started teaching yoga. I kept running, you know, for years and years, I just would run every day after work, you know, three miles, five miles. Um, I ran marathons. Uh, I went through various strength training certifications, strong first kettlebell certifications. um, And, uh, I got my um, personal training cert in 2020. I was certified as a CrossFit instructor. Again, I was doing CrossFit, but I wanted to know more. Like, how do you break down these movements? And what's, how, how did the CrossFit people develop this curriculum, so to speak? So I just am always so hungry for learning uh, about different things. 
I left the Phoenix in February of 2020 to start my own business, Pearly Health. It's something that I've always wanted to do is, um, you know, have, have my own thing. And the idea was to combine fitness with recovery coaching. My last day of work at the Phoenix was February 4th and the pandemic hit March 8th. My first year doing Hurley Health didn't go according to plan, but nothing ever does. So that's all right. Um, but I've been doing it for, for a couple of years now. I have a little workout studio in the basement, basement of my home. And the original idea of Hurley Health was to work one-on-one -on -one with people who are either like coming out of treatment or, you know, maybe not going to treatment, but new in recovery and to, to, to combine fitness or infuse fitness as part of the recovery process, not the whole recovery process. It's not a, fitness is not a recovery program, but it can be, for me, it was, it, it helped. I just know it in my gut that that helped me so much. Um, and also working in various settings, you know, seeing there is a gap, like, you know, fitness is not a part of many recovery programs. And it, it has such an impact on a person's mental well being. And, um, you know, I think that it can help help sustain a person's recovery, it can keep them from relapse if abstinence is 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 the goal. So um, I do just that I work one on one with people who are new in recovery. Some of my clients are people who are uh, have been in recovery for quite a long time. Right now I have, I work with one woman who's been uh, in recovery for eight years. And she but she, she's she's wanting to do some i also have a nutrition um, precision nutrition mm -hmm. certification. Um, so she's wanting to kind of, um, feel better in terms of her physical health and get in shape and, and, um, and, and I love it. It's really rewarding work, but here's the surprising thing for me is that I thought that this was the po population that I was going to focus on, but I did a dry January group everyone in this group was not in my non-clinical unprofessional opinion, not alcoholics. These are people who felt like they were drinking, their drinking had increased during the pandemic. They felt like they were drinking more than was healthy. These were fairly health conscious people who wanted to take a break from alcohol for a month. And so I supported them in the whole group supported each other in that process. And it was so cool. Mm. They love, you know, for, for people who are in that kind of gray area to have permission to be curious about sobriety or recovery or take a look at their substance use, to take a break from it, maybe to reduce it. Like back in the day when, when I got into recovery, you were either an alcoholic or, or not. You know, there, it was very <laughs> black and white. And uh, there's a whole world of gray right. out there. And I love the so sober curious movement and the idea that you do not have to be an alcoholic to live a sober lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Right. It, you know, you can do it for health reasons. You can do it because it you feel better, you know, uh, with without any chemicals in your body. So. I'm, I do support people now who are what I call gray area drinkers. Um, these are people who would not be clinically appropriate to go to detox or treatment. They will never go to AA. They don't want to call themselves alcoholics. They're not going to swear off alcohol forever. It's just that doesn't fit, but they're looking for, you know, something. Yeah. And working. So working with that population has been really, really fun for me. I love it because even for those who don't meet those clinical definitions, there are moments, events, activities where alcohol has done harm to them or those around them. Right. And so 
And I also love changing. what you're saying about fitness because we have a son that's um, in in recovery. He says he's in recovery. He's only 19 years old, and he is now turning into this CrossFit like, wow, he's totally into it. And it's yeah. really cool to see him doing that and setting personal bests and all that kind of stuff. And he's studying exercise science, so he's also very interested in the in the correct movement and technique and all that kind of stuff too. Yeah. I would love for you uh, to talk to him actually. I would uh, love to talk to him because one of the most interesting interesting things I've done this past year is I went through a training uh it's called trauma informed weightlifting. And it's through the trauma center at JRI justice reform Institute, maybe out of Boston. And, uh, it, it was just incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, again, I've learned a lot about trauma mm -hmm. over the last, you know, whatever time period thing, you know, I, I as a non-clinical person, I'm not, I don't really hone in on that kind of stuff, but, um, trauma is so common and you can heal trauma through somatic experiences, through bodily, through movement mm -hmm. and yoga mm -hmm. or weightlifting. Yoga doesn't work for everyone. There are people who go into the gym. I, the gym that I go to is a, <clears throat> a bodybuilding gym. I'm not a bodybuilder, but mm -hmm. it's a bodybuilding gym. And there are people there. It's very, um, uh, there are a lot of members, a lot of people in this gym and a lot of sort of like one percenters, people who bodybuilders are like the one percent of the fitness world. And you look around and I just have a sense that a lot of people in that gym have experienced trauma and what is driving them to the gym to lift heavy weight and to feel powerful is um, something that has happened in their life, in, in their past, where they felt um, like they didn't have any power. And learning about, like, just be, it's kind of like DE&I stuff. It's like just becoming aware. Like, just the awareness is something. It's progress mm. um, from, you know, I used to go into a gym and I never gave one single thought to the music that was being played, how the, it's kind of like an RCO, like, how is it set up? How do people greet you? What are people wearing? What, you know, what's the culture of the gym? So anyway, I'm off on a tangent, but if your son has any interest in, in that, I'd love to talk he's to him. Chicago. He's in Chicago. Well, he's in he Chicago, but uh, it sounds like you're going to open your own gym. Well, maybe, maybe someday. <laughs> we'll see. It's set up the way you like it and all this is a trauma-informed yeah. gym, you know? Like, yep. 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 As we come to the end of our time together, what are you looking forward to? Doing more of this work. Mm. You know, it, I feel like I'm, I'm, I've only been doing Hurley Health for about a year and a half. And it still feels very new. I still, you know, it's, it's hard having your own business you know, you have to do it all, all the marketing, all the, you know, communications, all the programming, everything, but it's really exciting. And I am looking forward to just sort of watching it unfold as I'm in the work. It feels, I feel like I'm in the right place. Mm. Thank you, Nell. I've enjoyed this conversation. I, I know you better now because of it. I appreciate you sharing everything you did. Um, so I wish you nothing but success and would love to come see you sometime and maybe become one of your clients. Because <laughs> I, yes. I need to become, a, I'm trying to become a little more healthy all on my own. Lots of well, love. I would like to, I would like to do what you did, which is walk, you know, I, I don't think I would ever be able to do the whole trail but even just a little section of it would be a dream come yeah. true for me yeah. so you come here i'll go there and yeah we'll, we'll be happy to support you you do that walk we'll, <laughs> we'll catch up with you and uh bring you ice cold coca-colas and no more sugar it has to be diet coke i'm not talking oh. about you i'm talking oh, about you. <laughs> all right <laughs> all right well thanks thank you Sam. both all this right. was great Thank Thanks. you. Take care. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters Podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ccar, the number four, recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast. And you can use the hashtag RecoveryFirst to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.